Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm your co-host, Jeremy. And this is a weekly history podcast that deep dives into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. Yes. So beautiful, so weird. And what's weird right now is that us, living in Idaho, we got some snow this weekend, but we got, I'm pretty sure, less snow than people in Texas. Right. And Mississippi? Did you see Mississippi got (laughs) snow? Mississippi got snow, too? Yeah. I just feel bad for all of the people in Texas that, uh, first of all, don't know how to drive in the snow, so they can't leave their houses. Uh, uh, Can we talk about the power outages? (laughs) Well, that's what I was going to say. And then they need, like, generators because there's power outages, and it's like zero degrees in Texas. Yeah. But they don't know how to- Pipes freezing. But they can't drive in the snow to go buy a generator, even if they can find a generator for sale. (laughs) Okay. I would just say that is a stereotype. It is. But- Kind of true. Kind of true. It's like that one time Georgia froze over. Yeah. (laughs) And it was hundreds of cars just left on the freeway. Right. Well, we can't do this, so. I'm just going to go home now. Yeah. Just going to (laughs) walk. But in all seriousness, we hope you guys in Texas are okay. Yeah. And those other states that have experienced snow. It's it's, uh, Mother Nature. Winter can be... uh, a hard one to deal with if you've never had to deal with it before. Definitely. So, hope for staying warm. Talking about staying warm, which president, for we're doing presidential trivia. George Washington. <laughs> cherry tree. Which president Smoked brisket. burned his official White House painted portrait because he hated it so much? Mm, George Washington. Yeah? <laughs> no, it wasn't George Washington. Oh. Ben Franklin? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not George Washington, nor Ben Franklin, not a president. <laughs> so I will tell you the answer at the end of this episode. I feel like this one should be like a game of Clue. Like, which president, where were they with the matches? <laughs> Thomas Jefferson in the Rose Room with the matches. No. <laughs> Cotton Mather was born on February 12, 1663, to a family of renowned Puritan ministers in New England. Cotton was quickly recognized as a child prodigy and enrolled in Harvard College at 12 years old. Jeez. To be fair, though, I should note that his father, Reverend Increase Mather, mm-hmm. they have some really good names, Cotton and Increase, are both first names. Yeah. His father, Increase Mather, was the president of Harvard College at the time. Oh. A little bit of nepotism there. Yeah. So, from what I can tell, Cotton was smart, but his... But was he Harvard smart at 12 years old? Right. That's that's what I don't know. Remains to be seen. Yeah. At 18 years old, Cotton received his master's degree and began to explore his own future as a reverend. However, Cotton had a stutter and was afraid that it would keep him from being an effective preacher. So, he also dabbled in medical sciences as well. Eventually, a friend convinced Cotton to enter the ministry, after all, and after working on overcoming his speech impediment. In 1684, Cotton published his book, Remarkable Providences, in which he detailed the demonic possession of the children of a local Boston family. He even had one of the children, a 13-year-old girl named Martha Goodwin, come live in his home so he could study her condition. Hmm. Which is also very questionable. (laughs) Yeah. 
In the book, Cotton outlined the symptoms of the children and how Satan was trying to prevail in New England. Very 1600s New England. Right. Was this, this was about the time of the witch burnings, too, yep? Yes. Yeah. Cotton became ordained in 1685 at the age of 22 and quickly became a very influential Puritan minister in the area. Hmm. When the Salem witch trials yeah. were taking place between 1692 and 1693, several of the judges and local ministers in Salem looked to Cotton's book on demonic possessions to help make their decisions. Oh, geez. Also being interested in the trials... Cotton wrote to one of the trial's magistrates to discuss the use of spectral evidence. Which is? Which is basically, Cotton advised that the court use caution when using spectral evidence, explaining that the devil could shapeshift into an innocent person. So, oh, so they're all guilty, even if they look innocent. Well, what That he, was kind of his take on no, it. No, what he, he's saying is that, because like, the girls... In Salem Witch Trials, there's a whole bunch of, like, young teenage girls that were saying, we saw this person be a witch, or they tried to... Cast a spell. Yeah. And what he's saying is that maybe that person's not a witch, maybe the devil shapeshifted into... Somebody like them? Into looking like them. Yeah. And so that person's not actually a witch, it was actually the devil. That's what he's saying is being cautious. Like shapeshifter off X-Men, right? Isn't that what her name is? I don't know. I'm not a big X-Men fan. Ooh, Mystique. Mystique, yes. So the devil is Mystique, <laughs> is basically what Cotton Mather is saying. Uh, I always knew it. Cotton mm. also wrote about how to test if someone was a witch, including having the person recite the Lord's Prayer, saying can't be a witch if they recite the Lord's Prayer. Because they'll just melt. They'll just, like, burst into flame. Yeah. Yeah. Despite his belief... In this, that a witch cannot recite the Lord's Prayer, when former Salem minister George Burroughs recited the prayer perfectly with Cotton in attendance, Cotton simply got on his horse and proclaimed that the devil has often been transformed into an angel of light, and that Burroughs was not an ordained minister. So somehow, in some logic, he's saying, ah, uh, still a witch. The competition's a witch. <laughs> yeah, basically. Though many in the crowd, after hearing the Lord's Prayer, wanted to stop the execution, Cotton's little speech basically gave the go-ahead to continue with the hanging. Gosh. So at first I was like, oh, he's like, bring logic to the Salem Witch Trials, and then never mind. Yeah. He's he's all in. Yeah. In 1706, some of the men in Cotton's congregation surprised him with a gift, an enslaved West African man. Because what else do you give your preacher, yeah. your minister? Yeah. A slave. Cotton gave the man the name... You know, not a new church or... Or even just like a nice Bible. Yeah. Or... (laughs) God, that's so messed up. Just a slave. Yeah. Cotton gave the man the name Onesimus, after an enslaved man in the Bible whose name meant useful, helpful, or profitable. Cotton described Onesimus as a very likely slave, a young man who is a Negro of a promising aspect of temper. We're not sure of Onesimus's original name or when he came to America or exactly where he was from in Africa. Right. Being that the first documentation of him was in Cotton's diary when he Cotton was... received him as a gift. But we do know that he had been captured in Africa and brought to America to be sold in the slave trade. Hmm. Cotton was excited to have Onesimus and believed that slave owners had a duty to convert slaves to Christianity and educate them. Hmm. 
Despite all of Cotton's attempts. Interesting principles for a slave owner. Well, he believed, yeah, it was like your duty that if you were going to own slaves, you needed to be a good slave owner and educate them and make them better people. Which, like, good slave owner, like, can you use those to... Well, I'm just saying, yeah, like, no, I, his I know, logic, you I, know? I, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. But, like... I think it was his way of making himself feel better about owning slaves. He's like, oh. Owning another human being. Owning another human being. Yeah, that's what I mean. Is um, that he's like, oh, but I'm making them a better person. I'm turning them into a Christian. Saving their soul. And I'm teaching him how to read and write and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, But despite all of Cotton's attempts, Onesimus always rejected Cotton's offer to convert to Christianity. There were about a thousand people of African descent living in the Massachusetts colony at the time, with a third of them living in Boston. The majority were indentured servants that had rights comparable to white indentured servants. However, in the early 1700s, fears of black people rebelling and rising up against white people led to tighter restrictions being imposed on black people of Massachusetts, whether they were slaves, servant, or free. Hmm. In 1703, Boston created a curfew for people of color in which they could not be outside past 9 p.m. without the express permission of their master or owner. And that went for, like, Native Indians, Black people, like, anybody of color. Uh, Yeah. Around this same time, Cotton had been interested in studying smallpox in his free time. Still, like, dabbling in his little medical interests. Yeah. Smallpox was the infectious disease that had devastated Boston during outbreaks in 1690 and 1702. Smallpox was often brought to Boston on ships that came into the harbor and quickly spread across the city. 90% of those that died from smallpox were under five years old, so it became known as the Slayer of Innocents. If someone that was infected didn't die, they had a one in three chance of being badly scarred and or hideously disfigured. Mm-hmm. There are several accounts that people who survived smallpox went on to commit suicide because they couldn't stand to see the reflection in the mirror anymore. Mm-hmm. One day, Cotton asked Onesimus if he had ever had smallpox, to which Onesimus replied, yes and no. Confused, Cotton asked Onesimus to explain. Onesimus showed him a scar on his arm and explained that back in Africa, he had undergone an operation in which some of the pus from an infected patient was rubbed into a cut on his arm. The operation was done on whoever had the courage to go through with it, and if successful, was forever free from the fear of contagion. Onesimus explained that this procedure was very common back in Africa and very effective at controlling epidemics. Cotton was very excited about this operation that he had never heard about before. Yeah, procedure. Yeah. Yeah. And asked other people who had been captured in Africa and brought to America on their experiences with it. Hmm. Majority of them were like, yeah. Common practice. We did the same thing. Everybody did that over there. Yeah. He also found that the practice had been commonly used in Turkey and China for quite some time. Hmm. So like America and England are just, he's finding are just behind the times. Behind in medical technology. Because that, yeah. Yeah. That's, That's what that is. Technology in its earliest forms. At 1711, Cotton wrote about how he always kept a strict watch of Onesimus and how he hoped that by teaching Onesimus to read, write, and learn Christian teachings, that he would become a better slave. He described Onesimus... Ah, there's the ulterior motive. (laughs) Yeah. He described Onesimus as a pretty intelligent fellow who stood apart from his peers. 
Onesimus got married, though it's unknown if his wife was free or enslaved. They had two children, however, both children died before they turned 10 years old. In 1716, a couple years after his son died, Onesimus asked Cotton to release him and give him his freedom. Onesimus had been able to make enough money to purchase a young black man named Obadiah that could serve in Onesimus's place. He's like, hey, been doing jobs, been earning money, so I bought another black guy to take over for me mm-hmm. so you can free me. Cotton agreed, likely because he didn't know how good of a Christian he could be if someone in his household was not a Christian. Right. Since Onesimus kept being like, no, I'm not, not going to convert. I'm not converting. And he signed a document that released Onesimus from slavery that he may enjoy and employ his whole time for his own purposes as he pleases. The document went on, however, to say that although Onesimus would be a free man, he would still need to perform certain chores for the Mather family when they needed him, such as shoveling snow, piling firewood, fetching water, and carrying corn to the mill. Which I don't know how free you are if you're doing, like, pretty basic household chores, I feel like, for early 1700s. Right. After Onesimus was freed, little is known of the rest of his life. So hopefully he didn't have to do, keep actually keep doing chores for yeah. Cotton's family. But he remained there, apparently. I don't know. Living with him. I don't. Kind of sounds like it. I don't know. On- Cotton stopped yeah. writing about him in his diary, and we just kind of... Yeah. Away. So hopefully he had a good rest of his life. Yeah. We don't really know. Yeah. Cotton, however, used the knowledge of smallpox inoculations that he had gained from Onesimus to advocate for them in Boston if smallpox ever returned. Hmm. In one letter, he was like talking to his friend. He's like, I kind of hope smallpox comes back to Boston because I kind of want to try out this inoculation theory. Yeah. When he got his wish. In the spring of 1721, the HMS Seahorse arrived in Boston from the Caribbean. A sailor on the ship had come down with smallpox, and though he was quarantined in a house in Boston as soon as it was discovered what he had come down with, it was already too late and smallpox was quickly spreading through the city. Mm. Cotton, excited to finally put his inoculation theory to use, wrote to several of Boston's doctors telling them about the process. Dr. William Douglas, Boston's only full-fledged medical graduate. Remember back then, a lot of times you could just be like, I'm a doctor. Right. Declare yourself and then start practicing. Yeah, but this guy actually went to school. Um, He was appalled that Cottonwood proposed putting smallpox pus... Smallpox pus... Am I saying that right? Smallpox pus. Smallpox pus into the skin of a healthy person. Mm Mm-hmm. Douglas was also angered that a clergyman would presume to instruct the medical profession on anything to do with disease or medicine ah, ego. that was based on the reports of uneducated slaves. Ah, ego. Getting in the way. And on one point, like, before, like, prior to the 1700s, reverends many times were acted as doctors. Right. Like, they were... The alternative medicine. Type. Yeah, well, they were, like, staples of the community, and they were seen as, like, learned educated men that they probably knew more about medicine mm-hmm. than anybody else. Right. So they would often like kind of delve and mess around with medical sciences. Mm-hmm. But now in the 1700s, when people are actually getting like formal degrees, education, formal yeah, education, formal education, apprenticeships. Yeah. This guy's like, how dare you yeah. think you know more about me or more than me about medicine, medicine. 
The majority of Boston doctors agreed with Douglas and declined Cotton's offer of inoculations. There was one physician that was interested, though, Dr. Zabdiel Boylston, and he decided to take Cotton up on his offer and inoculated his young son and two of his slaves. When the inoculations seemed to be successful, Boylston continued inoculating other Boston citizens. On July 21st, a town meeting was called to discuss Boylston's inoculation procedures. The other doctors that testified at the meeting declared the inoculations to be dangerous and were threatening the welfare of the community since they were spreading the disease and perpetuating the infection. Mm -hmm. So basically, they're like, he's not helping us. He's literally just giving more people smallpox. Right. Boylston was ordered by Boston authorities to not perform any future inoculations. Mm. Boylston ignored the order and continued inoculating patients, sometimes openly and sometimes secretly. The inoculations became a partisan issue in Boston, with leaders in the Puritan ministry community standing by Cotton and Boylston, and the majority of doctors standing in opposition to the inoculations. Many that feared inoculations used religion to back up their reasoning, stating that smallpox was a judgment of God sent to punish and humble people for their sins. Yeah. (laughs) If inoculation did work, wasn't it defying God's plans to punish these people? And if they didn't work, wasn't it a sin to expose God's creatures to dangerous diseases? So either either way, either whether argue, they worked ar- or not, either yeah, either you're argument. messing with God's plan. Yeah, yeah. Another or thing. third alternate, God's plan was for us to discover inoculation so we could prevent the disease. Well, or another theory was that this was African sorcery, since oh, Cotton got the information gosh. from Africans. Yeah. And that they were using this so that black people could wipe out the white population. They're going to use inoculations to wipe out white people so they can take over America. Oh, my gosh. There's just so many holes. It's just like Swiss cheese with this theory. Conspiracy theories. They've been around forever. Man. In August. It's all about the 5G. (laughs) It's so they could. Gosh. In August, James Franklin, Benjamin Franklin's older brother, published the first edition of his weekly newspaper titled The New England Current. In it, an article attacked the ministers that defended inoculations and attacked them for trying to control Boston citizens. Basically saying, your ministers are rich elites that are trying to, like, treat you like puppets and control everyone. Install quantum computers so they control their brains and thought processes for the new world order. Yeah, so basically... Wait, where where have I heard this argument before? Take today's conspiracies, take out all the technology, and then it's just... And plop it in the early 1700s, and it's just all the same. It's all the same. Uh, Gosh. (laughs) What's that saying about history? But it repeats itself? Yeah. If we don't. Oh, you mean it never ends? <laughs> it's just a sick, vicious cycle that <laughs> uh, keeps repeating forever and ever yeah. until the world ends? Yeah. That one? <laughs> yeah. Pro-inoculators responded by describing how easy inoculations were and how inoculated patients lay praising God in their beds and saying, maybe God's plan is to give us this knowledge of inoculations. So we can save his people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's another theory. That was my that was my alternate third yeah, alternate yeah, theory. Yeah. Yeah. As the fighting between 
pro and anti-inoculation groups continued, or pro-vaxxers and anti-vaxxers. <laughs> God, it's so relevant. <laughs> As this continued, smallpox continued to wreak havoc on the citizens of Boston. Right. As they're fighting, people are dying. Hmm. And, okay, I'll just take this moment to acknowledge, like, there, there are legitimate arguments for being against vaccinations on an individual basis. Yes. But I think a blanket anti-vaccination policy is just, I, I mean, if it's your religious beliefs, sure. But to, to try and control somebody else's beliefs. Like when the town was like, you can't do inoculations anymore, like, even on, he's only volu- doing it on people that are volunteering uh, yeah, and asking him y- to do it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, come on. Like, if, if these, right? Like, if these people were they're, like, literally they're- meant to die because this was a, this was a judgment from God, then like, wouldn't they still die because God wanted them dead anyways? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't believe people can interfere with God's plans. If God wants you dead, you're going to be dead. <laughs> and that's faith. And that's and that's how I view religion. Right. And that's faith. And that's faith. Thousands of Bostonians fled to the countryside to avoid the disease, and the economy came to a standstill. Hmm. So I have no idea what that sounds like either. Yeah. So many parallels. In August, there were 26 smallpox deaths in Boston. In September, 101. In October, over 400 deaths. The anti-inoculation group blamed the increasing number of deaths on Boylston, writing that Boylston should be treated as a murderer if any of his patients died from smallpox. Versus the people who didn't wear their masks. I mean, (laughs) went in public while... But I was like, but you're not going to blame other doctors if their patients that they're treating for smallpox, die. Like, yeah. if their treatments don't work, yeah, you double know? Yeah, standard. Yeah. I mean, this is back back in the days of, before the Wild West. I mean, back when there was, like, this is actually no like, modern, no scientific, like, analysis of it. And that's probably what needed to happen real, oh, real yeah. bad. Because, sure, I'm, I'm sure there were cases where there were inoculations that weren't successful and there were deaths. Oh, absolutely. But I think for the greater good and the public policy of it is like, hey, we can we can limit and minimize the amount of deaths by this procedure. Yeah, and I should say, like, this smallpox inoculation procedure, it's still dangerous. You're still putting yeah. smallpox into your body. Right. The hope is, is that... It's you're, a small enough it's amount. It's a small enough amount, and because you're putting it through your skin and not through your respiratory system... That you're going to become immune to it. Right. You're going to develop antibodies in the immune system to to fight it. You're just giving yourself a better fighting chance with this inoculation. Right. Which is kind of like the underlying theory of vaccinations. Yeah. Both Not a doctor. (laughs) Both Boylston and Cotton were insulted in the streets of Boston and often feared for their safety. Hmm. Very early on a November morning... A bomb was thrown through the window of Cotton's home. Luckily for Cotton, the bomb had been hurled so hard that the fuse had fallen off, hmm. and the bomb failed to detonate. I was going to say went one in, in one window and out the other. 
Attached to the bomb was a note that read, Cotton Mather, you dog, damn you. I'll inoculate you with this, with a pox to you. <laughs> Which, okay, a couple of things that, that I thought about this. One, a note attached to a bomb that you think is going to go off. Nobody's going to get a chance to read it, right? Because it's just going to go off and the note's going to be gone. But you'll know what it said. Two, I think the line, I'll inoculate you with this, <laughs> is really funny. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't know if this person didn't know what inoculate means. <laughs> or they're just using it as any verb. Yeah. And I also feel like that line could be used today by somebody throwing a bomb into a vaxxer, pro-vaccination doctor's home. Right. Which is scary to think about. Yeah. Eventually, the smallpox epidemic in Boston began to retreat. Of the 240 people that Boylston inoculated, only six had died, which was a ratio of 1 in 40. Hmm. Around 840 non-inoculated Bostonians died from smallpox that year, which was about 14% of the population, or 1 in 7. So, a lot of people, and a much higher rate. 1 in 7 died without inoculation versus 1 in 40. That died with. Yeah, that's... that's, That reaches, Those are pretty ratios. different yeah. numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, even Douglas acknowledged that inoculation had its advantages in combating epidemics. Wait, who's this? That was the doctor that was very anti-inoculation. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, you know what you're talking about? You got your information yeah. from black people. He literally called, uh, <laughs> called the town hall meeting to say, don't do this. It's bad. Yeah, that guy. He's like, okay. They work. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, he probably just, like, whispered it to his friends and didn't be like, hey, wait a minute. Like, yeah, wait well, a minute, everybody. Here's the thing. He said that they worked, but he never gave up insisting that Boylston and Cotton had acted irresponsibly. Yeah. He's like, they did work, but you guys were irresponsible and giving people inoculations. Right. And it's one of those, but it's one of those things where it's like, hey, if this has a chance of working, like, you got to outweigh, you got to do a, a, a risk analysis. Like, what are the benefits? Well, and at this point, too, at this time, you can't set up, like, trials. Right. You know? Right. Because it's here. Because it's, it's here. And, and they it's don't spreading. Ha- they don't have a method of, like, a lab and, like, storing samples yeah, they had, in a they, lab. And... They hadn't used, gosh dang it, if they had just used the scientific method, <laughs> yeah. develop a hypothesis. Over the 18th century, improvements were made to inoculation techniques, and they began to increasingly gain favor in the American population as a way to prevent smallpox. In 1776, George Washington's soldiers were greatly reduced to a smallpox epidemic and were unable to take Quebec from British troops due to not having enough healthy soldiers. Mm. By 1777, Washington was having all of his soldiers inoculated with smallpox before beginning any new military operations to keep smallpox from decimating his troops again. And that practice is still in effect today. Yeah, you being in the military have gotten a lot of vaccines. Yep, yep, yeah. Well, because, I mean... And all the words coming out of my mouth are just the, the government speaking to me through <laughs> through quantum... Through, through the microchips that through the, the, microchips all the microchips they placed in the quantum in you. computers that control my <laughs> thoughts now. In 1796, Edward Jenner developed a smallpox vaccine that used the much less virulent cowpox virus. Hmm. It was noticed that milkmaids that had that were exposed to cowpox were a lot less likely to die from smallpox. Hmm. 
the smallpox vaccine eventually became mandatory in Massachusetts in 1809. Hmm. And in 1980, the World Health Organization declared that smallpox had been entirely eradicated due to the spread of immunizations worldwide. That was 1980? 1980. So we're now, what, 260 years later? later. And it's finally eradicated through vaccinations. Right. Smallpox is still the only infectious disease to have been entirely wiped out. So due to no records being available after Onesimus left Cotton Mather's home, we don't know if Onesimus knew that his knowledge saved about 240 people in the Boston area, plus however many more from Americans now. In the 240 years. Yeah, in the 280 or 260 years, yeah, whatever we said, years, yeah. because of our knowledge of inoculations mm-hmm. and and possibly America winning their independence because George Washington Knew was, about inoculations and, and was using that to keep his soldiers healthy. Yeah, so don't Onesimus. I mean, definitely didn't know about Gosh. that way later on. But right. just that's crazy. To, it's crazy to think about like the the impact that 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 like little bit of knowledge, like somebody armed with that amount of knowledge, who then shares that information. And then it just kind of grows. And it's like one of those things to say, like, there's no, there's like, there's no small idea. Like, right. Something, something that might seem just so, so, so unimportant or, so, yeah, so insignificant can have such a huge impact on history. Absolutely. Yeah. Just like what the flap of a butterfly's wings can create a hurricane. Right. Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Is that the butterfly effect? Yeah. Yeah. My sources for this story are Cotton Mather by Rachel Walker, African American Lives by Stephen J. Niven, When Cotton Mather Fought the Smallpox by Lawrence Farmer, How an Enslaved African Man in Boston Helped Save Generations from Smallpox by Aaron Blakemore. Presidential trivia, which president burned his own official White House portrait because he hated it so much? wasn't George Washington. It was not George Washington. It was Theodore Roosevelt. Ah. And I don't know if it counts for George Washington because there was no White House when he was president, so he couldn't have official White House portrait. Yeah. But, no, it was Theodore Roosevelt. Um, French artist Theobald Chartrand complained that it was difficult to get the president to sit still. I never had a more restless or more charming sitter. Said that Theodore, every time he was supposed to come in to sit, he would always be walking around, pacing, Pacing. talking to people, having like friends come in to like chat. And a lot of people that saw the painting said that it was really bad and that it looked like a secondhand photographer that didn't have like much experience, much experience, (laughs) nor felt like they had the time of day to take this picture, like a good picture (laughs) actually took it. So apparently it was a really bad painting. Yeah. And I think was the, it a painting or a picture? It was a painting. Yeah. But people said it looked like a secondhand photographer had taken a picture. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the artist knew that. He was like, but I couldn't like get a good painting because he literally never sat still. Yeah. Not being much of an artist myself, I imagine that's probably pretty difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Roosevelt hated the painting and hid it in a dark hall of the White House for years until he eventually just burned it. Hmm. I don't know what it looks like because oh. it got no, burnt. There's no evidence. Yeah. Well, I understand wanting to burn a bad picture of yourself. There's plenty that my mom have of me from junior high yes. that I would gladly burn nope. so they never see the light of day nope. ever again. <laughs> nope. Not going to happen. 
But anyways, to Texas and to the rest of America, we hope you guys stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, stay stay weird, weird, America. America.